exploring faith journeys and inspiring ministries that embody the good news of God. This is The Cumberland Road. I'm your host, T.J. Melanoski. Stepping away from what makes us comfortable presents us with a different perspective, a perspective to view our own life journey. Today's guest has done this many times in his life and says from this stepping out, our trust deepens both in God and in others who are on a journey of faith. Reverend Johan Daza is the Director of Intercultural Ministries for the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. In our conversation, he describes the small nuances between faith practices among different cultures and settings and context. He says, it is in the midst of this diversity that we become the body of Christ. Join with me as I learn more about Johan's early years in Colombia, his calling to ministry, and his aspirations for the church universal. Enjoy today's conversation on the Cumberland Road with Reverend Johan Daza. Johan, I want to open our conversation with a question, and I've been thinking about it in my mind, and I don't know exactly how to frame it. But here it is. Here's my best shot. As someone who is born and raised in Colombia and has spent the last 10 years here in the United States, talk about how the Christian faith and practices are the same and maybe are different. You have a unique insight, and I would like to know what the Christian faith and practice, how the two overlap, because we're crossing cultures here. And we're also crossing borders as well. And what that looks like. And what is your perspective? Well, well that, <clears throat> I think that's a great question to start. Because it just also helped maybe connect it to who I am. Um, because my father was a Presbyterian minister. And when you say Presbyterian in the U.S. context, context people will assume we're talking about the PCUSA. <laughs> <laughs> And perhaps many people don't know that even in the US, there are over 30 different Presbyterian denominations. But when you go outside the US, almost every single denomination is a national denomination. So the Presbyterian Church in Colombia was the Presbyterian Church of Colombia, even though it was founded by missionaries, they work was for Colombians. And the denomination is a Colombian denomination. So that itself shows that there is diversity in terms of um, when you talk about denominational identities. I studied in a Baptist seminary. (laughs) And a Baptist seminary there is completely different from what a Baptist seminary here in the US might look like. So so from, from my perspective, when we talk about the practices, of faith, when we talk about how we live our faith, our, our faith, I, I believe that there are cultural aspects, social aspects connected to that. And that creates a context where, where faith is lived. 
And before coming to live to the US, I have my own perception of what Cumberland Presbyterians look like. I was a Cumberland Presbyterian for, uh, I don't know, 20 years at that time. Uh, and when I came to the US, I thought I, I knew everything about Cumberland Presbyterian identity. <laughs> and, and the first uh, perhaps shock in terms of my faith was to recognize that no, I was wrong. Um, there are many, many, many things to learn about Cumberland Presbyterians around the world that are different in terms of practice, it are different in terms of context. And even though we have the same identity as Cumberland Presbyterians, um, there are a lot of differences and that's okay. So in order to avoid generalizations, <laughs> from my perspective, um, I grew up in a high reformed church when I was a, a kid. Then I transitioned to a more contemporary blended uh, worship service style. Then I moved to Cali when I found that there were more charismatic style churches. And at the same time that I was living and serving in, in a more traditional style church in Cali. But then I came to the US where there were not only American churches, but also Latino churches, Korean churches, Japanese churches, and all those kind of things were for me like, oh my goodness, this is beyond um, my own understanding. And perhaps it is still some, something that is beyond my understanding because there are many, many, many uh, differences. And it is in, in the midst of diversity that we can be the body of Christ. So that helped me perhaps to have a different understanding of that. Being the body of Christ is enjoying that kind of diversity where we are different from one another, but that makes the body perfect. Mm. So um, perhaps, I don't know if that responds to the, your first question or your opening question, but <laughs> um, I think I have grown in, 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 in my faith journey because of those experiences and relationships with many other Cumberland Presbyterians or Christians in general. What were some of the distinctions uh, in the practice of the Christian faith between Colombia, specifically Colombia, and what you've witnessed in the United States? So <laughs> I was baptized as an infant, but I was baptized in the Presbyterian church. <laughs> so, so, but that's not the norm in Colombia. So when you talk about uh, Christian practices, for instance, if we want to talk about baptism, our confession of faith talks about it, <laughs> but there is not one or uh, other way to do it properly. No, there, there, it is open. And in Colombia, if you go and check the, the yearbook of our denomination, you will find out that there are zero infant baptisms <laughs> in Colombia. And the reason is because, uh, because of the context. There are many uh, realities related to Christianity in Colombia connected to Catholicism, connected to uh, our way we understood, understood Protestantism and also how we understand the church that made that difference clear. Here in the US, it's, it's common to see infant baptism. In Colombia, that's not the case. Uh, that's just one practice, but it is something that is very important for the Christian journey, the faith journey of many people. 
So if you ask some Colombians, they will prefer to be baptized when they are um, aware of what they're doing <laughs> and they're making that decision themselves than being baptized and understand the concept of preservation of faith. <laughs> so that's one, for instance, that's just one example. Another example would be the length of a worship service. You can come to the US here and they say, oh my goodness, the, the, the worship service is over. It lasts less than an hour. That's impossible in Colombia. I don't think there is a worship service in, in at least in the churches I know where service will be less than an hour and 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Well, let, let's turn the page. So for listeners of the podcast who may have certain perspectives or ideas about the Christian faith and practices, again, we'll stick with Colombia. What would you want them to know to expand that perception? Well, something is that we can stay where we are comfortable. <clears throat> and that's our nature. Um, but stepping out <laughs> a little bit will present you a different scenario about faith journey. Because you will, you will be trusting not only God and Holy Spirit, but also the people who are experiencing those faith journeys. And those faith journeys are as genuine as your own one. But you will notice and learn that those spiritual journeys and faith journeys will be different. So, so when you embrace people <laughs> and when you embrace other Christians, you need to be open to that, that the work of the Holy Spirit doesn't stop with you and your denomination. <laughs> And your interpretation of scripture and your way to celebrate sacraments and etc., but it goes beyond your understanding. And that's that's one of the principles of love. I think it is difficult to measure, and the faith journey of many people around the world are difficult to measure because it dimensions the, the greatness of God. So if you are listening to this, um, be open and sensitive because. When we are in our comfort zone, it is easy to get defensive <laughs> or it is easy to judge things from our own perspective rather than being open to what God is doing in other settings and contexts. Well, my question has kind of spurred um, intercultural experiences and that plays right into um, your role in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church and the Cumberland Presbyterian denomination. So, Johan Daza, share with me briefly who you are and your role within the church. Well, I'm Johan Daza. <laughs> um, I'm a Cumberland Presbyterian minister. Um, I am serving with the missions ministry theme uh, through the cross-cultural immigrant ministries. USA program, that's the, 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 the office. And I served among the non-English speaking congregations planted here in the United States by the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. So basically that's that's what I, I, I'm doing right now. That's my ministry, that's my call. And um, there are around 60 different um, non-English speaking congregations in the United States. That belong to the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. What does a typical work day look like for Johan Daza? 
there are two different areas of my, my job. When I said office work, it's office work. Typing, writing, sending emails, writing articles, uh, calling people, <laughs> that's part of, uh, of my, my job. But the other aspect is the relational aspect when you can have the opportunity to visit and be one or face-to-face -face with people. And obviously due the, to the pandemic that has changed drastically. So for those who are listening right now, even though this is an audio, TJ and I are connected through Zoom in a video conference. So we can see at least each other and our facial expressions. And, and, and that's part of, of the dynamic. Um, the relational aspect of my job is, is to work with different church planters, pastors, and church plans. So for me, that's the aspect of the relational part of my ministry. And obviously at the office, I have my coworkers and you're one of those. <laughs> and, um, but again, the relationship is part of the essential aspect of work. Everything we do is relational. And our work is that. So uh, daily work um, will be including some of those elements at least. So our conversation began about uh, early experience and your insight to different cultures and Christian faith practices. There usually journeys have a beginning point. And so how and where did your faith journey begin? Um, I was born in a Christian family. And by saying that as a Colombian, that will mean I was born in a non-Catholic uh, family. Um, both my parents, both of my parents are ministers. So I was born and raised in a Christian family. I am a pastor's kid. <laughs> <laughs> one out of four <laughs> and um we lived in different cities in colombia because of the ministry of my parents so they were serving different churches in different stages of life and times and i was part of that <laughs> so yeah basically that that's my journey uh, or, or the beginning of my journey and perhaps it's not the, the common rule for, for other Christians in Colombia. Yeah, that would be unique. One, because growing up Protestant, and then two, of course, being a minister's offspring or PK, preacher's kid. Yeah. <laughs> so exactly. how, did that, how did that play out in, in school and growing up? Oh, my goodness. Well, Presbyterian denominations in Colombia, they own the, what we call Colegio Americanos, American schools. So when I was in Colombia, in Bogota, in the capital, because my parents were the pastors of the first Presbyterian church of Colombia, <laughs> I was studying in you know, the first Colegio Americano of Colombia. <laughs> so the, the American high school in Colombia that has pre-K to uh, uh, high school. So. Um, even my my my, high, my 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 school education at that time was in a Protestant <laughs> environment. That again, that's not the rule. That's a privilege, actually. And but then um, we we moved to a different city when I was uh, eleven years old, 
and I enrolled at public school. I was the only one in my family among my siblings studying in a public school. And it was for what is the equivalent of middle school and high school here in, 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 in the US. And it was the first time I was challenged um, as a non-Catholic because of my faith. And that was a very special, um, how can I say this, experience because, uh, because of what I shared earlier, I grew up in a safe environment that it was always Christian, Protestant, but then facing the reality that, hey, that's not the world. <laughs> <laughs> and there are people with different ways to understand the world. And being able to study in a public school opened my, my eyes and opened my vision of what being a Christian, even though I was a preteen <laughs> ager, um, it, it helped me to embrace other people who even they were non-believers or in a more Catholic environment. So um, I think it played well <laughs> in general, at, at least at, at those levels. What were some of the challenges that you faced? Perhaps many of you are not familiar with this. Colombia was a Catholic country until 1991. Can you picture that? I was almost 11 years old when the constitution changed and Colombia became a lay country. So I grew up being protected by my Protestant family in a Catholic environment that I never faced because I was always comfortable in terms of levels of education and my religious beliefs. But then when I moved to, to Armenia, when we moved to Armenia and I started, I started studying in a Catholic environment. So Catholic cathedral, I mean, the class was offered at, at at the school. Public school. At public school. And, and for me, it was like, okay, everything is Catholic. I'm going to bring my, what is my understanding of my faith? So that was challenging. And if you ask my parents, that sounds funny, but one of the subjects I, I lost, if you want to call it that way, I don't know how do you say it in English, it was religion. Oh, you failed religion. I failed religion. And, and, and my parents were surprised. And I said, well, don't be surprised. This is the reality. <laughs> I'm not Catholic. And, and, and I don't embrace Catholicism. So for me, it was um, one of those challenges. I, I... <laughs> so that's one. And I was uh, uh, um, uh, 11, 12 years old. Yeah. So an ordained minister later in life. Looking back, <laughs> failed religious courses in school. That's interesting. It is. I like it, by the way. <laughs> Maybe it shows progress. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Johan, share with me a meaningful experience that you've had with God. It could be something that from over the weekend or childhood experience something that you knew put you in tune and in touch with God? There's no doubt that I have many. Um, but perhaps one of the most um, strong ones was when um, I'm married to Erin, that's a Siegler, and we had two children. We were pregnant of our third kid, and we went to Colombia to visit our nephew, Mateo, who had a heart problem and was uh, required to have a heart transplant in order to continue living. 
So we spent one week there and we returned from, from Colombia to Memphis. And we were in, in our eighth, ninth month of pregnancy. So we went to the checkups with the doctor and we were there at the office and the doctor checked everything. And then it took longer than expected, but it was um, a moment like, okay, something is happening <laughs> and we don't know what it is. So then another doctor came and sit, sat with us and, and he started drawing a heart. <laughs> and at that moment, it's like that feeling that something is wrong. And then he wrote another heart. So he said for the first one, this is a normal heart. <laughs> oh my goodness. So we were visiting our nephew with heart problems and we returned to the US and now we're listening to this. So it was devastating at that moment, that kind of emotion that this is something bad. <laughs> and, and he said, but this is your son's heart. So he explained all the situation he had in his heart. And Aaron and I was sitting there and it was a moment where we felt like, um, I don't know how to express this in English. But it was one of those moments where there was no time to pray. There was no time to say, God, where are you? <laughs> it was just a moment where we were together in tears. And then <laughs> the doctor returned and put his arms on us, like almost like a benediction. <laughs> That's my interpretation now. And he said, everything will be fine. And just by saying everything will be fine at that moment, it was like feeling the presence of God saying, hey, everything will be fine. And for those who, who know Felipe, who is our third child, he's, he will be four on Thanksgiving day this year. And he's a living miracle. So that's one of those meaningful experiences where it was not a pastor praying for us. It was not a... <laughs> I, I, I don't even know if that person was a believer, but what it was God's hand touching us saying, everything will be fine. So it, it was the physician's words and touch. Correct. And that's yeah. uncommon. <laughs> right. Well, that's yeah. powerful. Thank you, Johan, for sharing. How has your faith in Jesus Christ given you purpose? You alluded to earlier in life where, you know, growing up in your formative years, the differences between being a Protestant and a Catholic and the, those practices are clearly different in some cases. But looking at these different experiences in your life, how do you know that Jesus Christ is there? And how does that drive that relationship drive you day to day? Perhaps I'm going to use a Cumberland Presbyterian term or a Presbyterian term. It was when I really understood the preservation of believers, the, the meaning of the, being preserved as a believer, where I understood God has a purpose <laughs> for us. I mean, um, I think the church in general for me was the space where I grew in my talents, my gifts. And also in my relational um, aspect of life to the point that uh, I understood that whatever I do, 
do it because God is there. <laughs> and it sounds weird, but um, uh, I think the the it was in, er, in an early stage of my life when I I realized that really God God has something for 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 us as human beings, and I care for relationships. I think to the point that that. Um, I want everybody to enjoy what I enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, it has been a, to the point today that where uh, I know that God works in context and, and, and in ways that I don't need to understand. I just need to trust God and know that the purpose for each life is, is fulfilled by God, by the presence of the Holy Spirit. So. Um, again, even if the person doesn't know, <laughs> I know God works on, on, on everybody. So, yeah, I believe there's a growing, starting to grow in the Christian faith, a return or at least a, a, a study on the mysticism and the mystery of the faith and the experiential aspect of the faith and the merit and the, the wealth that you can draw from those things. Doctrines and dogma and practices are important, but there's some things that cannot be measured in terms of metrics. And I think that's what you're kind of alluding to of maybe we don't even have a language or word or terminology. I also like what you said. You want people to enjoy what you enjoy um that's a great great way of looking at the faith and we tend to do that naturally anyway whether it's a book or a movie or a sport uh, why wouldn't we do that with a relationship that we have with god yeah. who are some folks who have had a great impact on your growing in the faith well, it's difficult because there are many. Um, I can recall, obviously, my parents uh, have a great influence in who I am. Um, and, and because of that ministerial responsibility they had, not only uh, in, in their church ministry, but in, in their family, I think that's essential for me. And, and again, when I was around 13, 14 years old, um, I had two of my Sunday school teachers, Amparo and, and Mariam. <laughs> I remember their names very well. And when I was about to turn 15, they said, uh, we want you to teach with us. Uh, we want you to, 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 to serve in this ministry with pre-teenagers. And for me, it was like, wow, why are they doing this? If I'm a still a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and they did it, and they helped me in my formation to teach uh, others. And that was meaningful until today. I, mean, I, I think um, that has been part of my journey because it separated from my parents. It was not, it was not them. It was uh, these two uh, special persons in, in my life. And in, in, in life, uh, it's very interesting because I grew up surrounded by missionaries from the U.S. And, 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 and South Korea. But 
when I met John Lovelace. John Lovelace was one of our missionaries in Colombia. But something characteristic about him is that he was that bold person who, who wanted to share whatever was in his head. <laughs> and, and I was like 19 years old and, and he told me once, you have to go with me to El Salvador. <laughs> I said, sure. <laughs> he really brought me to El Salvador. He, he, he did everything for, 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 for me to go. And it was my first missionary experience. I was 19, being uh, outside my own context, but learning about a different culture and, and, and learning about him and, and, and others. But something he, he told me once, um, Johan, whatever you do in life, love God. Just love God. Love God and love others. <laughs> and, and, and as simple as those words were, I didn't um, understood at the time how deep those words are when you put those in practice. And so John Lovelace was one of those who um, impacted my life. And this is the joke. He was the one who started somehow those cross-cultural ministries in the 70s. It was through him that some things started in Bethel Farm Workers Ministry. So, so to what today is Bethel Farm Workers Ministry that started as a uh, congregation to serve uh, Latinos at that time. With him also the, the church in Chicago. But now I'm working in this position something that somehow is connected to what he did in the past. So for me, that's, that's, that's meaningful. And, and my partner in life, my wife, um, she's the one with always difficult questions related to faith and life. And so she helps me to rediscover God in, in new ways and to reinterpret the scripture from, from, from different perspectives and lenses. So, um, yeah. How? And why did you get into ministry? Okay, so how, how, how long it has been? <laughs> this is the longest. Now, um, I finished high school when I said I was 17 years old. Um, in Colombia, military service was mandatory. And I wanted to avoid the military service. <laughs> so I had a friend in 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 the army who graduated earlier and <laughs> and i said hey man i don't want to go to the army so he said okay we were in a big stadium soccer stadium and we were sitting there and and he said okay if you see it on the left side uh, those are the ones who uh, are going home if you sit on the right side you will be going to the army and this so, is during a recruitment the, process. The recruit, okay. you, you, it's, it's normal. You have to go to a place, stay there. And there are two options, go back to home or go somewhere else. <laughs> so it, it, in some ways, it, it's kind of like jury duty where you're waiting, except there's more, more people and you're yeah. waiting in a, a football, soccer stadium. And all of us were males, young uh, uh I mean, we were 17 years old, all of us. That, that's now illegal, I think. <laughs> but, and, and I did what he said. I said, I said there, and the captain came and he did exactly the contrary to what my friend said. 
he he said to the, the the ones who were sitting on the on the right, okay, you can go home. You on the left, come with me. And I was there, and I said, Lord, what's going on here? This is. <laughs> I was a teenager, and and you know how teenagers are. <laughs> it was the devastating news for me, and it was the worst I could expect to happen uh, in my life. I wanted to avoid the military service and, and, and I was there now. So I had to get in a truck without knowing the other people I was uh, riding with. I got to the base and uh, the first thing they do is uh, they give you a new haircut. So all my beautiful hair that I had at that time because I'm losing it today, uh, everything was gone. They gave me the military, uh, how do you say that, all the clothing and up bed to sleep. And that night, a captain killed himself right there. We didn't have any, any, even time to react to what was happening there. So it was um, a bad beginning for me. And that started affecting my faith. <laughs> um, the next day, <laughs> those who know him were crying I was crying too but I was crying not because of them but because I, I was there <laughs> I didn't want to be there I was crying because of that maybe people thought that I was crying because of the captain I didn't care about the captain at that time I was crying because I thought God was unfair <laughs> with me and um, I loved soccer and playing soccer at that time and after the fir first month I got an injury in my knee that required uh, surgery, surgery, and it was bad. Then um, I was assigned to, um, because of my injury, to serve in the clinic of the army. So you cannot imagine all the things you see when you are serving in a clinic that belongs to the army in Colombia that has had one of the longest armed conflicts in the world. And I was driving the ambulance because my parents decided that it was good for me before going um, uh, after high school to have my driver's license. So I, I got it when I was a teenager and I drove the ambulance, but there was a moment when a soldier, we know, we knew he killed himself in front of all of us. And tough, as tough as it was, we had to drive that vehicle with him. And I remember being in, in tears after that, cleaning <laughs> the blood from the ambulance and then receiving the news that he died. So it was the worst year of my life. <laughs> so being a teenager, being there and being a Christian, um, so being a Protestant in the army, was not the norm. <laughs> and obviously, it, it, uh, if you understand the concept of bullying, uh, yeah, uh, they did it because I was a Protestant. Hey, uh, curse your, 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 um, the, the soldier with your words. Use bad words. I said, no, I'm not doing it. But by not being, I had consequences. So, 
it was the worst year of my life. It was during my military service. I saw many deaths. I saw many things people don't want to experience, believe me. And there was a moment when I started saying, where are you, God? <laughs> I thought I knew about the real world, but it's obvious that there are some things that are beyond um, myself and I don't see you here. So on December 18, 1998, December 18, 1998, I said, okay, God, if you're real, <laughs> that's what I told God, you have to show me what you want with me because this is not over and uh, it's difficult to face what's going on. So um, it was that moment where in prayer, in reading a scripture, um, God showed me, say, hey, um, I called you even before you were formed. And that for me was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> and it was not only a call, but a challenge. It's like, it is up to you now to identify that call. And it has been a, a journey where I have understood that God really want, wanted me to be in an intercultural ministry. Um, and I'm here because of that call. Hmm. So perhaps that's the short version. What did the 17-year-old Johan want to do prior to the military service? I wanted to study electronics. I, I didn't want to be a pastor because I knew how difficult it was for my parents sometimes. So now I was there facing the reality of <laughs> trying to avoid that call too. <laughs> <laughs> so after, so was it during or after the military service that you embraced the call to ministry? It was still during because um, the regular term of service was one year, but because of my injuries caused by accidents and other things happen, that happened in the army, um, it took me two years to be released. Okay, so you are released, you have served your country through the military, and what happens next? I went to college. I studied electronics and technology in Colombia, but I had the call clear. So um, I attend seminary and I didn't want to study where my parents studied. <laughs> <laughs> they graduated from the seminary in Medellin that is very well recognized in Colombia. But I wanted to experience more like the university style and, and um, the, the Baptist seminary in Cali was the first one that was accredited by the uh, Department of Education in Colombia. So that's why I decided to study, study there. Um, for those who don't know, studying theology in Colombia is you have to study for five years. So it is because you at the end uh, graduate as a professional in that area. So let's talk a little bit about that for a minute. So in Colombia, now correct me where I'm wrong, that study can begin in the equivalent of... Um, or close to the equivalent of college level in the United States. 
Is that correct? Or there, you have the college degree and then seminary. How does that work? Um, if the, the thing is that uh, the system in the U.S. is completely different from the system in Colombia. So there, there is no equivalency. Um, some people have transferred their, their theological education here, and it's almost the equivalent of a master's degree here hmm. because of the length and all the credits you take during your, your what will be the bachelor here. But it's not a bachelor. It's, it's different. <laughs> uh, so the system is completely different um, in terms of education. Uh, so it is different to, it's difficult to have the equivalence of, of how it works here versus how it works in Colombia. But yes, I'm, I mean, I had to study four years for the first degree and then five more years for the next one. So uh, it, is, it, is, it is a different experience than here in the U.S. So what brought you to the United States? That's a good question. I'm married to an American. Erin is from Akron, Ohio. She's the only in her family who speaks Spanish. And she was living in Colombia when I met her. She was uh, actually working at seminary, not at the seminary per se, but it was an office of the, uh, the Mennonite Central Committee. And I met her there. So when we, we got married, we were living in Colombia. And something that you can do is to wash a $1 bill in the washing machine. And even though you wash it at the end, it is still impeccable and it's still working, but you cannot do that with your passport. And I did that with my passport. I forgot my passport in one of the pockets of my, my shorts on, on Monday and it went to laundry, a washing machine and I, <laughs> I damaged my passport. So I lost my visa <laughs> to come to the US. So we decided let's apply for the green card. So that's the called the, the immigrant visa. So that, that means that you will be living in the country. And we applied thinking that it will take two years. TJ, it took three weeks Whoa. to be approved. So we had to change all our plans and start calling people here. And one of the options was, would you like to come and study a little bit here at seminary? And I said, well, why not? So I applied for MTS to do my theological education according to the American way. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the reasons why we ended in Memphis was because of Memphis Theological Seminary. And for those who know Barry Anderson, he is one of those who is guilty of that. <laughs> so that was, that was one of the reasons why we ended here in Memphis in the U.S., it was a, a lapse of, of forgottenness and the washing of a visa that helped instigate the movement into the United States. You're right. Well, that's a happy accident. <laughs> it is. It is because it is now a journey of 10 years and I am a U.S. citizen now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we've talked quite a bit about the past, Johan. Let's talk about your relationship now in Jesus Christ. Where do you see God working in your life today? Um, I think God is reaffirming the great diversity of God's people in the world, in my life. And I think God is working in my life through helping me to understand that we can become bridges to connect with other people 
and help to connect people among them. And I think that's where I, I see God working. At the beginning, it, it was difficult, TJ, because of the language limitation. Uh, when I came to live to the US, I didn't speak English. And seeing that development of, oh my goodness, I can understand now the language a little bit. <laughs> but now after 10 years, I, I, I'm speaking with a broken English, but I'm still doing it. And that helps me to connect with people. Um, and that's meaningful because if you think that it will be impossible 20 years ago, but now it's possible and serving among uh, Korean, Latinos, uh, um, Americans, et cetera, et cetera. It is, it is God's work. So um, everything I see and experience in my life, even in my family, we have an intercultural family. My wife is from Akron uh, and my children are, are growing in, in, in the midst of at least two different worlds, learning English and Spanish, uh, language, learning about her culture, my culture, her faith journey, my faith journey. So I, 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 that's the way I see how God is working uh, today. I mean, it's not disconnected from the past. It's, I don't think it will be disconnected from my future. In 2021, when you're in conversation with other folks, how do you articulate God's activity in this world today? I think that's one of the most difficult questions for many people to respond. Um, the pandemic has changed many things in the lives of, of people, in the life of the church. However, um, I'm trying to, to, I don't play, well, I'm good on playing doubles advocate. <laughs> um, in, 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 in you and I have had this conversation in the past, TJ. How we write our emails, for instance, um, we can use a negative language or we can say the same things in a way that sounds positive. We have had those conversations. It is the same in the world today. Um, there is a lot of negativity. And, and, and I'm not saying that faith is not about that. Uh, I, I, no, what I'm trying to say is that there are aspects of God that are so positive <laughs> in the midst of negativity that it is difficult to see them. So seeing God working as God, the goodness, the love, the mercy, the justice, etc., etc., all the aspects of God in place in the midst of the craziness of the world. Um, I, I have shared this with people and, and it is like, um, the world has been in crisis all the time. And it is in, in that context where God works. The problem is that we don't see the crisis many times because we are so distracted with the goodness. But the, the, it looks like the, the pandemic has helped us to see the crisis in new ways and also that see God working as we didn't, uh, did, we didn't do before. So um, God is working in ways, again, beyond ourselves. And I want to listen and, and see that goodness happening. And I have seen the testimony of God working in other places and even in our own context. Yeah, you and I have talked about, um, and I've shared with you that there are times when I've had to write, you know, in, in moments of stress or distress, 
or disappointment and just write it out with all of that and then come back and revisit it and go, okay, I got that out of my system. You got that out of your system. Is there another way to look at this issue, this crisis, and relay it to where you speak of the obvious, but you also speak of the hope in the future? That there will be a conclusion, that there will be a de-escalation, that there will be, there, there's hope. Um, there's peace presently, but in the future as well. Yeah, you're right. I hadn't hadn't had to do that in a little while, but there have been occasions where it's like, okay, get it, get it all out. Yeah, angry, upset, stressed, frustrated, and then go back and go, okay, did anyone really ask how I felt about it? <laughs> right. <laughs> and then rewrite it all over again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Johan, what? What hopes do you have? What visions do you have for the Cumberland Presbyterian Church? Um, I have have always heard that the Cumberland Presbyterian Church is a church, a family church. And the way I have heard that, it has been in different contexts. In Colombia, we expect the family to come to Christ, to become Christians and to be part of the church. And here in the U.S., I have noticed that there are Cumberland Presbyterians who have been Cumberland Presbyterian for generations. Uh, and sometimes you ask, and some people say, "Oh, I'm the sixth generation." Uh, and I say, "Okay, that's that's impressive." Um, and and perhaps that that's the vision. Um, it is very difficult to disconnect my faith from my relationships, but unfortunately, it looks like that's the common rule for some people, where it looks like the the spiritual journey of the journey of the church, of the common Presbyterian church, if you want to call it by name in terms of your church and denomination, uh, sometimes it's disconnected from other relationships that are equally important, family relationships, friendship relationships, et cetera, et cetera. So the pandemic has helped somehow to discern regarding what's the, the, the reality of family and, and, and church. Um, I'm not those who are uh, good and checking numbers, but it looks like the, the, the house churches, the home churches are the ones who are growing as fast as other large churches. And it is in the simplicity of homes, in the simplicity of being who you are generally in your relationship with your family, friends, and persons around you. So, my hope is that we can understand that church is people more than buildings. And the pandemic is helping us to understand again, or to redefine again the purpose of being the church in these times, in times where family need to be closer, where people feel that they are not loved, people feel that they are not heard. So um, it is our responsibility because that's part of our call. It is, and it is a universal call. It is not just for ministers, for everybody who believe that God wants people to come to Christ and God wants uh, people to become disciples of Christ. Of Christ. Um, um, my hope is that we can grow in those areas, that perhaps we can see the church in, with new lenses, with new uh, fresh expressions, if you want to call it that way, even though, no, I know that is a movement called that way. But <laughs> what I'm saying is that 
um, the church is still relevant for these times. And we are called to, to that. So my hope is that, that we can start identifying the, the church as simple as a home. How would we take the message of Jesus Christ into a world that would say that message is irrelevant? My question would be, is there any relationship that is irrelevant before God? And I want to talk about my 10-year-old girl, daughter, who will be 11 in, in a few weeks. Um, people matter for, to her. I mean, to the point that um, through her relationship with one of her friends, um, a family started connecting to church. I didn't teach my daughter about, hey, these are, these are the, the ways you evangelize people. You share the gospel with people. No, it was the simplicity of a genuine relationship between two girls who wanted to be friends, who write notes to each other, who give gifts to each other in order to grow in the relationship according to their own understanding. It's the same dynamic. It is as simple as, uh, 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 as that. And sometimes we're guilty because we think that relationships are from one side, <laughs> when in reality, it is multi-side multi in terms of you, you are interacting, the other person are responding to your interaction and your relationship. And we can decide how deep we want to go in those relationship. You can leave it as, super, as a superficial one, or you can go deeper to really build that relationship with, with, with that people. So for you, the message of Jesus Christ, the message of love, grace, forgiveness, peace, is never separated from the human being. No, it is as deeply as our relationships. I have heard many people who said, I, I already shared the gospel. If they don't want to hear, it's their business. <laughs> <laughs> That's the superficial way to say, live it that way. It is our decision to go deeper. And we are responsible for those decisions. Johan, if you could ask God one question and you knew that you would get an answer, <laughs> what would be that question? What happened in 1998? <laughs> <laughs> to you, December the 18th? Is that what you're Before referring that. to? Before that. I mean, the preservation of believers <laughs> somehow means to, you don't have to experience everything in the world in order to, go, to be a Christian. <laughs> But there are the, the things I present, especially um, suicide. I have seen in my journey that, and it has been younger people. It has not been um, older people. It has been people my age, around my age or younger. And, and, and that's, that's the thing. <laughs> and that's, that's why my question has multiple layers. It's not just where were you in 1998, but please help me to understand that, all those kind of things, because um, it's a still mystery for many people to understand, especially when it's related to suicide. Yeah, and looking back into the past and revisiting it and the mysteries it still brings into the present. It's fascinating, it's scary, 
I think that's a good question. God, what, what was going on in 1998? Cause you witnessed <laughs> a lot. <laughs> yeah. A lot. Yeah. And experienced a lot. Johan, thank you for sharing. Um, if folks want to continue to know more about you, how can they follow you on your faith journey? <laughs> if they are willing to learn about how to be more intercultural sensitive, um, if they want to learn about intercultural leadership, uh, I will be more than glad to share uh, some thoughts and also to learn from them. Um, I'm around. I'm a Cumberland Presbyterian. <laughs> Joan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing and your life and your call to ministry, your faith journey and your insight on the church. I deeply appreciate it and deeply appreciate you. No, thank you for care because it is like <laughs> uh, we work together. We spend a lot of time talking together. But doing this is different. It's a different setting. It is. is. So we can talk more about it later. But yeah, thank you. Thank you for for, for, uh, this time. It is amazing. And and, and thank you for doing this for the church. I think there are many, many people uh, who have awesome faith journeys to share. So thank you. Yeah. And I enjoy each one of them. And it feels like a privilege to be able to, to hear those journeys, those voyages, those pathways, uh, I get to travel, unique place to be able to travel with them. And I hope that you enjoy them too. So thank you for listening to today's podcast. Grab a friend and travel with me on the next journey down Cumberland Road. <laughs>